Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is PC Mag's Sasha Sagan. Sasha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Sasha is PC Magazine's lead mobile analyst. He has reviewed more than 1,100 smartphone tablets and other gadgets and is more than 15 years with PC Magazine. Sasha is also a multiple award-winning travel writer. If we have time, we'll get to that. He's sort of like Mike Elgin. Oh, did he used to be a travel writer, too? He still is. He doesn't have a house. Mike Elgin travels all over the world, has, an internet, has, a, has a, a MacBook Pro, and gets himself an internet connection, and stays at bed and breakfasts and hotels, and doesn't have a permanent home. He's just is a world traveler. Oh, cool. that's I amazing. Had I had Maybe him on the show. when my kid goes to college. We talked about that. Yeah. So, cool. But this show is all about you. So, tell me, how did you get started with computers? Well, when I was uh, when I was eight years old, I uh, wanted to use a computer to do my homework, and I somehow convinced my parents to get me an Atari 800, which I had done my research. It was the most advanced uh, system that I could come up with for both doing your homework in elementary school and for gaming, and um, they got me the Atari 800. And I never looked back. I actually started uh, first getting interested in Macs uh, right when they came out in 1984, because what would happen is that uh, my mom would go shopping at Macy's here in New York City, and she'd need something to occupy the kid while she was looking for you know clothes for herself, for the family, whoever. And so she would just park me in the, uh, there was this display at Macy's where you could just play with Macs. They had Macs in Macy's, and you could just sit there and play with them. And so she'd just park me in front of the display Macs while she went and shopped, and I'd use uh, MacWrite, MacPaint, you know, all oh, of those Mac original Paint. applications. So yeah. many of my guests tell me the story about how they got hooked on the Mac with MacPaint. Yeah, it was just such a radically different, futuristic, cool, fun way to interact with a computer compared yeah. to what I was used to at the time. So what was your first personal Mac? Did that come before or after high school? Uh, that was actually uh, that was actually middle school. Um, so the Atari 800 was starting to look a little long in the tooth. And uh, I convinced my grandparents to get me a Mac SE. Uh, to use through high school, and that was that was such a great workhorse. That SE, uh, that SE, you know, it got me through high school. It got me into college. We did a lot of the uh, high school newspaper stuff on it. Uh, early desktop publishing. I, did I you got, carry um, it to school like a lot of people did in a special leather carrying case and set it up in the lab and. Uh, no, what we did was we had a uh, so we had an SE thirty. Uh, at the school, oh, that awesome. was the okay. yeah, that was the official high school newspaper computer. And what we do is we take the SE30 from the school and some other kids' computers and take them all over to my apartment and Apple talk them together with uh, <laughs> telephone wires and work all night. Can you believe we published on a nine-inch black and white screen? I mean, I our eyes must have been amazing then. <laughs> 
I know. Um, at the at the school, we got uh, one. Fortunately, we got one of those big radius monitors to go with it. Those huge tube monitors. If you remember how much they weighed. Oh yeah, yeah. Seventeen inch. Mm-hmm. CRT in those days weighed about fifty pounds, maybe forty. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was an absolutely solid piece of kit. So uh, so yeah, so it was a it was just ad hoc early Mac desktop publishing extravaganza all through high school. So did that make you a, an Apple customer for life? Sort of like hook you on Apple like a lot of it, like the rest of us? I mean, on and off, what's happened in my life is that uh, periodically I've had to turn to Windows either for business reasons or uh, because Apple isn't providing the hardware I need at the time. And that second bit is something that does really frustrate me because I feel like it's happening right now. Um, I went over to a Dell laptop at one point uh, in the late 90s when uh, the Mac laptop line, I think it was still in the power books with the numbers. It was not so great. Um, and uh, for the past couple of years, I've been using Windows laptops at work because uh, I cannot stand the new Mac laptop keyboards. They're so bad, they actually drove me over to Windows. Really that bad? Really? Is it just really? a personal preference for, you know, the keystroke or the pressure or is it something? Yeah. Yeah, it's all about it's all about having keys with a little bit of throw and depth to them. I mean, typing is my life. That's that's what I do, and I need it to feel thoughtful. Uh, I, I need it to feel effortless and easy and fun. And I mean, like the 2015 MacBook Pros, I have one at home. Those feel terrific. And then, for some reason, Apple just completely trashed the keyboard experience on their computers. It's Super frustrating. So I have a 2015 MacBook with the original butterfly keyboard, and I have loved it uh, through the years. I like a keyboard with a little shorter throw and a little stiffer mm -hmm. key. And I'm betting you like a key that has a little softer feel to it and a little longer throw. Exactly. Exactly. And. Yeah. And our company here, I mean, after all, we, I mean, we're PC Mag, but we have a pretty even mix between people using Windows and people using Macs here at work. So I could have gone either way, but the IT department was nudging me towards Windows anyway. So I kind of fell over the edge. Do you use, heaven forbid, Gasp, do you use Microsoft Word to write your articles? Uh, no, actually, what do I use? Actually, I do use Office, but I use OneNote. Oh, amazing. <laughs> you really are on the deep end. <laughs> oh. So do you do any like HTML markup or anything, or do you just write it in clean text and then submit it? Yeah, no, we have our own, uh, we have our own proprietary online CMS here. Uh, so Content management system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we are PC Mag. We are a big old operation. We do more than two thousand product reviews a year, I think. So, it's an extremely custom setup to get all of those product reviews in and through and managed and searchable and commerceable and all of that. Yeah. So, it's it's its own system. So tell me about the path you took from high school into college and then on to PC Mag. How did 
How did you arrive at PC Mag, and what year was that? So I started writing for PC Mag in '02 as a freelancer, and uh, what had happened was that my interest in journalism and my interest in technology developed together. Um, I'd always been a computer geek. And um, starting in high school, I really got into journalism. And over the next several years, I was that I was always that newspaper editor who was also fixing the computers. And um, say, this or, story sounds so familiar, Sasha. <laughs> exactly. Or you know, I was always the guy. Relatively early in the internet, I was the guy charged with getting whatever. Th- publication I was working on onto whatever the internet was at the time. And so, um, so by the turn of the century, I turned out to be a uh, writer about technology. And um, so I was freelancing a lot in 2002, 2003, and uh, 2004 comes around, uh, PC Mag wants to hire their first full-time writer about smartphones. And I thought, this is a cool up-and-coming technology. This is definitely something, I mean, not a lot of people have this. This is pretty obscure right now, but I kind of have a hunch that this is going to be a big thing. Tell me, so, tell me about the smartphone market in 2004. This was a couple years before the iPhone came out. Yeah, it was uh, insanely diverse at the time. It was very, uh, very focused on mobile business people. The idea was that these were expensive devices on expensive service plans, primarily for people who needed to get their email on the run for business reasons. Um, So this was things like Motorola Sidekick and stuff like that? Oh, um, I think uh, this might have been before the Sidekick. The Sidekick was really the first smartphone-esque thing for kids and teens. This was uh, Windows Mobile. This was the Palm Trio. This was uh, relatively early Blackberries, like the 7000 series Mm. Blackberries. Were they they really smartphones with the the keyboard? How do you, well, let's back up. How do you define a smartphone? So we were defining a smartphone as, um, first of all, it has to be a phone. Otherwise, it's a PDA. (laughs) Otherwise, it's a Newton. Um, (laughs) So first of all, it has to be a phone. And it has to run third-party applications that uh, can come from um, any programmer or source and not just the manufacturer or your wireless carrier. Does it have to be internet enabled? Um, I mean, hmm. in some way, because what internet enabled meant back then was pretty limited. The connections were very slow, and you had things like uh, you had things like I think it was the Palm Seven, which uh, downloaded. Uh, downloaded specially collapsed abbreviated copies of web pages because it couldn't even handle a whole web page. Was this was this something that you were kind of roped into and then developed a favor for? Because you've well, you've been spending a lot of time with phones over the years. Yeah, I mean, I I, I like so, so things I like. 
I like helping people with complicated things, and I like uh, making complicated systems and situations uh, easier and clearer for people. I like making people's decisions about the world easier, and um, I like technology, and um, I like um, seeing how technology changes the way we live and the way we think and the way we operate our society. And so I'm lucky that smartphones have kind of been at the juncture of a lot of that. They're, they've totally changed our society. They're a major technological leap forward, and everyone has them, and everyone has burning questions about theirs. So that's definitely kept me interested in them over the years. Well, I have burning questions for you, but we're going to have to defer them until part two. Folks, we're, we're talking to uh, Sasha Sagan, uh, PC Magazine's lead mobile analyst. Uh, we'll be back after this commercial break. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Macmore, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage, where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you could just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos and podcasts just like this one. So, the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with PC Magazine's lead mobile analyst, Sasha Sagan. So I want to ask you about a couple questions that are on my mind about smartphones these days. Let's start with foldable phones. Mm -hmm. Are foldable phones sort of a boondoggle, expensive toy for elitists, or do you think the technology is here to stay and is going to percolate into the mainstream? I mean, at the moment, they're an expensive toy because the screens are just so expensive to manufacture and because the yield on those screens, the amount of usable screens you get out of one production run is very, very low. But it does answer, it, it does solve a problem that people actually have, which makes me feel hopeful about the technology. And the problem is that people keep on wanting their screens bigger and bigger and bigger. They want bigger windows to the internet at all times. And, you know, we've seen that with the constantly growing size of iPhones. But beyond a certain point, you can't actually hold it in your hand anymore. So foldables solve that problem, don't they? They give you a, the biggest possible screen, but collapsing down to a size where you can actually hold it. Has Samsung solved the problem on the Galaxy Fold? The early units were kind of not so great in terms of durability and the cleanness of the Fold line. Are they solving that problem, or is that still kind of a lingering issue? The the Galaxy Z Flip uh, solves it somewhat in that uh, it's definitely better than the original run of the Fold. You can still somewhat see a crease 
uh, in the middle. And uh, you can't put a hard screen protector over one of these screens because nobody's figured out a hard screen protector that folds. So it's definitely still early days with this technology. We're seeing early versions of it. This is going to be one of those things that Apple, you know, kind of stands on the sidelines and lets everybody else work out the problems <laughs> with before they jump on board. I saw a patent application uh, article on the internet the other day about Apple getting a patent for a flat display on both sides of the phone and wrote about it. And one of the readers goes, no, no, no. No matter which way you lay the phone down, you're going to scratch the display. <laughs> so, okay, so there's two things about patents. First of all, um, as you know, a patent doesn't mean a product. Of course. Yes. Of course. But also, patents are sometimes a little unmoored from what's possible with today's materials. And they may be thinking, well, there might be a material we could do this with in three or four years once yeah. some of these foldable glass problems have been solved. So let's can be defensive in nature. Exactly. Yeah. I thought it was kind of amusing that, uh, what about, what about the science fiction aspect of a projected display? Is that anything near reality yet? I see that a lot on science fiction shows where you hold a little device in your hand and you have a holographic display floating above it. Yeah, I've seen I've seen devices with projected displays for the past 10 years and ultimately it doesn't work for two reasons. One, uh you often don't have something to project it on. Um and two, uh the power, the the the, the power to run that extremely bright projector kills the battery on a handheld device. Mm. So what you're what you're more likely to see, and you know, Apple has a ton of patents on this. Apple is definitely working on uh, augmented reality glasses, and then you have your display floating in front of you on your glasses, which we know Apple is working on. Yeah, yeah, we talk about that a lot at the Mac Observer. Yeah, they got to solve the problem of prescription lenses and people who have specialty prescriptions and how you integrate that into the AR system. There's going to have to be some coordination with the uh, eyeglass industry or something like that. <laughs> I suddenly had a uh, I suddenly had a vision of Apple buying Warby Parker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next question I have for you is: the coronavirus going to affect the delivery of the iPhone 12 in September? Um, I think it is slightly too soon to say. I think it is probably going to affect the delivery of the iPhone 9 slash X slash SE2 in April. Um, I think that's one we can bank on supplies being low of. There'll probably be back orders. There'll probably be, you know, a longer delivery window than you want. Um, for September, we need to wait a month or two to see if uh, this mess is still going on. Yeah. You mentioned the iPhone 9. Is the iPhone 9 and the iPhone SE 2 the same phone, or just we don't know the name yet? Or are there yeah. basically two phones? No, no, there's one phone. We just don't know, don't know the name yet. Some people call it 9, some people call it SE 2. I saw somebody on Twitter calling it the iPod Touch X, which, you know, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Well, you know, the SE2 has this fond memory because a lot of people really loved their SE. 
and it seems sensible for Apple to cash in on the idea of an SE2. You know, it's, it's the love, beloved SE you had, but it's better in a new iPhone 9 seems to be kind of retro. Yeah. I don't know where that yeah. came from. I think I think people were just saying there had never been a nine, so it fits in right there. But uh, obviously, they're not marketing gurus. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a lot of my curiosity is around um, how this is going to slot in vis-a-vis the eight in the current lineup, and whether this is going to kick the eight out of the lineup. Whether there's still going to be a reason for the iPhone eight to remain in the lineup. I I, I don't quite have a bead yet on how those two fit together. Okay. Tell me about 5G. Tell me about the frequencies. Is there, Can you build one phone? I guess the Samsung S20 is one phone that has covers all the frequencies that are being used. Or is it more complicated than that? Is it, is it likely that Apple will end up having multiple phones for different carriers because of the different frequencies they use? Or can you build one universal 5g modem chip it's like it's like 4g if you remember when 4g started it was almost impossible to find phones that could work on all the 4g networks and then after a few years that straightened out um it's happening faster with 5g um the as you said the large s20s work on all the u.s networks they don't work on all the global networks but apple has had multiple has always had multiple global models of phones. So that's not something that would be out of Apple's uh, usual behavior. Um, So yeah, I mean, 5G, as I'm glad you kind of insinuated knowing, 5G isn't a frequency, it's just a method of encoding radio data. So it can work on any frequency. For example, 600 megahertz on T-Mobile. Exactly. 600 megahertz on T-Mobile, all the way up to uh, 39 gigahertz right now. So that is an incredibly wide range of frequencies. Um, are there specific and, frequencies that are to, approved by the FCC, or do the, do the phone developers identify frequencies they want to use and get a license and approval? Or how, how does the frequencies used break out, and who, who controls those? So the FCC licenses frequencies to wireless carriers, um, but the FCC doesn't tell the carriers which technology to use on those frequencies. Um, It turns out that uh, 4G only really works up to about 5 gigahertz. So anything over 5 gigahertz or so, they're going to be using 5G for, and then for the lower down frequencies, they mostly are going to slowly turn over their 4G networks into 5G as they can move the customers. Okay, okay. That clears things up a little bit. Um, do you expect there to be any kind of evolution, like there'll be an early 5G version and then there'll be a 5G phone in 2021 that's more capable, or will we have everything we need from the get-go in the iPhone no. 12? Every year, every year, there are going to be new capabilities uh, that uh, change things. It is such a fast-moving target right now. Um, for instance, the uh, the chip that's going to go into the iPhone 12, which is the Qualcomm X55, um, will not support certain capabilities that AT&T intends to turn on in 2021. 
Um, but if Apple chose the next chip, the X60, that wouldn't support capabilities that all of the networks are going to turn on in late 2022. <laughs> so it's just moving so fast that Apple basically just has to say, okay, you know what, we've got to bite the bullet. We've got to use something that works. We've got to use the best thing we can use right now. I saw an article the other day that said that people were holding off buying the iPhone 11 because they're waiting for the iPhone 12 with 5G support. And boy, they're going to be in for a surprise when they find out that their 5G phone isn't going to last forever. Well, I mean, it'll last. It just won't do yeah, the yeah, absolute yeah, newest, yeah. coolest network thing. Yeah. 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 So. What do you think of some research reports that suggest that a phone radiating in millimeter wavelengths is not so healthy? Um, I think that that is, um, I think that there have been a lot of studies which I've read that say that uh, really the only thing millimeter wave does is warm you up slightly. Um, I mean, millimeter, what's, what's funny about these complaints is that um, Millimeter wave's problem is that it doesn't penetrate things. Everybody's talking about, you know, they're worried that millimeter wave is somehow going to penetrate them and cause disease, but the entire difficulty of working with millimeter wave is that it doesn't want to penetrate things. It doesn't want to penetrate leaves and trees and buildings and people and anything and you're bone, carrying. Bone. Yeah, and that makes it, I mean, honestly, that makes it safer, not more dangerous. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, soft tissue there in your ear, in ear area, though, that might not be a barrier to millimeters, like trees and logs and rain and bone. It also does not adequately penetrate human skin. Ah, that's good to know. Yeah. Okay. okay. So but before we wrap up the main section here, before we get into discussion of a couple of articles you wrote, I want to ask you, how would you size up the state of the competition between Apple and Samsung in the smartphone market? We hear mm -hmm. varying different viewpoints, and it seems like one gets a leg up on the other for a while, and then the other you know, kind of shoots forward. What's, mm -hmm. the, what's mm -hmm. the state of the competition right now for the listeners? So I think that globally right now, both of them, uh, globally right now, both of them are suffering heavily from some really intense uh, competition from lower cost Chinese manufacturers. We don't see that in the U.S., uh, but globally, both Apple and Samsung are just taking a beating from uh, the BBK companies and Xiaomi and some of these other Chinese makers that are really undercutting them on price. Hence the iPhone SE. Two. Hence the iPhone SE, exactly. Two. Yeah. Two. And here in the US, um, here in the US, I mean, Apple has this really entrenched position based on its, uh, based on iOS and iOS stickiness and the excellence of Apple's sales and support network. Um, the Galaxy S20, I've got to say, has some really cool hardware features on it that I don't even think we're going to see on the iPhone 12. But, of course, the question is, can Samsung make those work in software? And as you know, because you read my review, the jury is literally out on that. We are waiting for a software update to see if they can make it work. What are some of the key hardware features that are enabled by this software in the Samsung S20? It's a fourteen hundred dollar so, phone, and it's not a foldable phone. So what, what, what's in there that's making it so expensive and so cool? 
So the big uh, the big move with the S20 is the super zoom camera. Um, you have a combination of cameras. There's a telephoto camera, a regular camera, and a 4x camera, and they uh, use AI combination to create 10x lossless zoom and then 100x digital zoom. It also records 8K video, which is stabilized and has a, a high refresh rate, no, 120 no, no, hertz. No. Why would you want to record 8K video? You want to record 8K video because you want to zoom and pan after the fact. Uh, not because so, you're going to transfer to your 8K television. I mean, Samsung says, <laughs> yes, you can upload it to YouTube in 8K. Yes, you can throw it to your 8K television. And yes, you can do all of that. But you don't have that stuff. And what people no, are really don't. going to no. <laughs> But it turns out that 8K video is, what is it? It's 4X zoom on a 4K video and 16X zoom on a 1080p, something like that. Yeah. So that means if what you really want to produce is 1080p, you can record something in 8K and not worry about moving your camera around and instead do all of this digital zooming and moving around in post that hopefully looks like it was in native 1080p resolution. Okay. All right. Another article I wanted to ask you about is, as we wrap up the show here in a minute, uh, what to expect from Apple's March event? What do you know about Apple's so, March event? And what, what, what can we expect? So I uh, definitely agree that they're on track for Tuesday, March 31st. Um, I hope to be there. I've been in most of their events um, in the past Steve 15 Jobs, years. Steve Jobs Theater. Uh, probably Steve Jobs Theater, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, March 31st, we're going to see that SE2, and I think we're going to see new iPad Pros. Um, I think we're going to see an update to iPad OS that begins to show more of Apple's hand in terms of the whole question of ARM Macs and, uh, and uh, helping to merge the Mac and iPad lines. Will they have an A13 or an A14? Because usually the phone leads the way and the iPad follows. Yeah, the iPad will be an a A13X, which uh, is what they tend to do with the pros. Expanded graphics chip. Yeah, because they need that to support the 120 hertz promotion screen. And so we'll have some discussion of the A13X. 120 hertz, I, I think you're talking about games, Apple Arcade, and things like that, right? No, no, that's the ProMotion screen, which uh, Apple really likes uh, for use with the pencil and a lot of creative oh, okay. apps. Oh, it okay. gives you this beautiful responsiveness in pencil usage. But yeah, sure, games too. And we've heard um, rumors that Apple's going to ship a new Apple TV 4K and uh, with an A13 in it or an A12. The idea yeah. there is to get the high refresh rate for games. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, it's been a while since they bumped the Apple TV, um, but I am, you know, particularly as an old old Mac head, I am really interested in seeing how they decide to converge iPad OS and, and Mac OS. Like I, I used an iPad Pro as my secondary computer for um, about a year. And uh, honestly, I mean, maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I would really love to see mouse support. Finally, you know, that that might pull me back over to using the iPad Pro more. Yeah, I think there's going to have to be some changes made to iPad OS. There's been a lot of discussion in the uh, Mac community recently 
in the iPad community about multitasking and the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, Apple, born with the restrictions of iOS and born on our phone, sort of fumbled and groped its way into multitasking and iPad OS in a, in a way that is not real pleasing for a lot of people. So yeah. I, hope you, I hope you're right that they demonstrate a new version of iPad OS. Yeah, under the hood, uh, under the hood, iPad OS has perfectly good multitasking at this point for its applications. But I just can't get with the whole carnival gesture, three card Monty yeah, thing with yeah. the tiles. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, well, any final thoughts you want to wrap up the show with on the iPad or anything else? Um, no, but I would like to say that um, I do have I have ongoing coverage, especially of uh, 5G rollouts, new phones, of course. Um, but if you are interested at all in what your wireless carrier is doing, we have this great page called Race to 5G, which I've been updating every month, uh, pcmag.com slash 5G. Um, and uh, it's got this fun little horse race graphic that shows you how the carriers are competing on 5G, and uh, then a selection of stories that uh, help get you up to date on what they've been doing. Oh, cool. I'll put that in the show notes. All right. Sasha, thank you for joining me on the show. It's been most interesting and informative. You've mentioned some things I did not know about and our listeners, I'm sure, didn't know about. So thank you for sharing with us. Well, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I'll go back to reading. uh, I'll uh, go back to reading about the future. So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. So I am most responsive on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is Sasha Segan. It's my name. Uh, but if you want to contact me through email, uh, my email is Sasha underscore Segan at PCMag.com. Great. Okay, it's been delightful. Thank you for joining me. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with John Martellero on PC Magazine's Sasha Segan. We'll be back next week.